Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckabillies? What's going on? How are you? Good to see you. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. Hope you're enjoying your day so far. Hope you're having a nice drive or a nice run or perhaps a, a nice uh, bath. Be careful in the bath. If you're listening to me on something that's not a battery-operated device, don't die in the tub while listening to me. Before I get into me, I want to say that I have one of the great uh, psychedelic geniuses on the show. I don't know if he'd like being called that, but a masterful uh, painter of the the realms of the mind, uh, Robert Williams, the genius painter, is uh, is on the show today. I went over to the Barnsdale Art Park where he had a, a basically a retrospective along with some juxtapose uh, collection. And you know, certainly you can look up Robert Williams. He's got a lot of uh, amazing books out of his work. And, uh, you know, he goes all the way back to Zap Comics, maybe a little before. Dude's been around. He was, at, he was down here in L.A. with uh, Von Dutch and uh, Big Daddy Roth making hot rods and doing pinstriping. And he was up in San Francisco with Art Crum and S. Clay Wilson and Spain and the fellas doing the panels. And now he does big paintings, little paintings, prints of all kinds. Uh, he, he's an, he's an, a very aggressive and profound imagination and it was a real honor to talk to the dude uh, because uh, his, his, his paintings blew my fucking mind. It's always nice when I can get one of the original mind blowers on here. You know, for me, there's only a few. Uh, there's a, a, a small Olympus, Mount Olympus of mind blowers that defined how I see the world. Williams came late to me, though I don't think I registered him initially in the Zap Comics as being Robert Williams, but later on, the paintings were like a complete mindfuck, and when I saw them in person, I was uh, 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 excitedly devastated in the best way possible. So Robert Williams will be talking to me. Also, my buddy Nate Bargetzi, one of the funniest humans I know, uh, has got a special coming out. So he stopped by the other day. Uh, we were at Moon Tower together, and he stopped by his... Uh, his hour-long Comedy Central special, Full-Time Magic, is uh, on Saturday, May 2nd at midnight. It's 11 Central. And me, Mark Marin, the Marination Tour is extended. We're going to Cleveland, Chicago, Minneapolis, Port Chester, New York, Brooklyn, New York, Huntington, New York, Red Bank, New Jersey, 
Portland, Oregon, and two venues. Boulder, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. You can check out all the dates. They're up at uh, WTFpod.com slash calendar. But I do want to give you a, a quick heads up for certain people in certain cities where the pre-sale is uh, happening today until 10 p.m. Uh, that's for the Playhouse Square in Cleveland on June 5th. Uh, you can use the promo code PERFORMER. Um, for Minneapolis, the Pantages Theater on June 7th, promo code PERFORMER. For Huntington, New York at the Paramount Theater on June 27th, the promo code is PULSE. Portland, Oregon on July 10th and 11th at the Aladdin Theater and Revolution Hall, uh, promo code MARIN. Boulder in Denver, Colorado, July 24th and 25th at the Boulder Theater and the Paramount Theater, promo code MARIN. Uh, all the venues are officially going to go on sale tomorrow, May 1st. So again, go to WTFpod.com slash calendar for all the dates and uh, get involved in those pre-sales. Nate Bargetzi and I hung out. Him, myself, Kurt Metzger, Todd Berry went to get some barbecue at Moon Tower. And old Nate said that he was going to be in town here in, in uh, Los Angeles for a couple of days. And I had not realized he moved to Nashville. He just, under the radar, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where he grew up. I'm going to talk to him about that right now and about his new special. As I said, that airs uh, this Sunday, May 2nd, full-time magic at midnight and uh, 11 Central on uh, Comedy Central. So uh, my buddy Nate stopping by. Nate Bargatze. How long did it take me to get your name right? A long time. A lot of people still say Bargatze. Because of me? Oh, no. You called me Nick. So, oh, Net. Well, the Nick thing, that wasn't that wasn't a real thing. A lot of people call you Nick after that? Yeah, yeah. That was... Uh, people, like, looked up Nick Bargatze. I remember I told you, I said on, like, when you could look at something to, on my website, it was, like, the fourth... Nick. ...thing was Nick Bargatze. <laughs> Didn't I correct it? You did, but uh, you said my last name right. Oh, good. Hey, we were just happy to be... Yeah, halfway there? Halfway, yeah. yeah something yeah. identifiable that yeah. they could have... I think I told you it would be... You know what? It might be easier for me just to change my name to Nick than try to go... But was that me. before I talked to you? It was right at the beginning. I thought you said it on the Nerdist, like when you did. Oh, it was okay. uh, the Right after fest. I met you. Yes. Right. Yeah. And we were talking about that, and you thought, like, you're big, there it is, my big opportunity to get it's mentioned on the go. Nerdist podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, I fucked it up. I'm just going. I'm just going to change my name to Nick. <laughs> right. That would be the easier way. That's easier. That's less people to tackle than. <laughs> so, so what the hell happened? You were out here in L.A. living in. Where were you living? Somewhere in. Oh, we were way down. A, like <clears throat> Carson. Carson. Uh, yeah, near Torrance. So you're you're down there in Carson, mm. near Torrance. Yeah. With your new baby. New baby. Driving up into the city to do ten minute spots. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now you're gone. That was it. That was it. Yeah. What happened with the uh, <clears throat> with the show with the Fallon uh, produced uh, pilot? We did uh, we did it two years in a row, and uh, nothing happened. You they did scripts, scripts, yeah. sold two scripts, and then wrote them, and uh, neither one of them got picked up, and uh, so now we're here. Uh, we're did, is that when you decided sort of like well, I don't need to live here? I thought we did it uh, before. I moved in uh, December. Yeah, and uh, I just I don't know I get like well, I'm just like well, I'm just gonna do it and uh, I say it was the first thing I've ever done in the you know I've been I've left Nashville in 13 years so like so you moved back to Nashville yes I okay. moved back to Nashville it's the first thing I've done in 13 years that wasn't for me yeah everything's always been 
This is, oh, you know, so this was selfless. This was the first selfless thing. I mean, I still now I just leave there. Yeah, you you owed it to your wife and your new child to give them a chance to, to you know have a life, not have to be in the <laughs> dicey streets of Carson by themselves. <laughs> like <laughs> while you're while you're out at the improv, I'm out at the improv as some drinking, hotel, drinking, just you know, be like life's great, whatever. Yeah, calling your wife up, going, "How's everything? What's going on? Did they catch that guy that shot that guy?" <laughs> And then she's like, I don't know, you know. So we heard a guy get shot in our neighborhood. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so well, that okay. Well, you did the right thing, and now you're not drinking anymore. Yeah. You're living in Nashville. You got a house. Got a house right down the street from your parents. Yeah. See, that was, but I think on some level that was a, that was a smart move in a selfish way to have the parents nearby because then you can have some time. I can take go, the child. Yes. yes. We can give her, my mom comes over. And, and they're her, happy to, right? Grandparents. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have a bunch of, uh, my brother has four kids and my sister has a kid. So like all the cousins and stuff. And one of our, uh, one one of my nieces is uh, like nine months older than my daughter. So they're like best friends. Yeah. And so them being around and she's going to all these birthday parties and, you uh, know, I mean, she's like, you know, instead of just being her and my wife. Down in Carson. Down in Carson. Hold up. Hold up and- uh, now we're you know, and I got a I stay at uh I got a room out here that you I can do? come to. Well, my buddy has an extra room downstairs. Oh really? I noticed you have an extra room. Yeah, uh, I mean you can stay in there with the records. <laughs> with the records. You can, yeah, there's a bed up against the wall. You just throw it. Just that's fold, a, it's, it's like not, a Murphy bed. It's like a Murphy bed that just covers the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even hooked into. No, it's oh. just it's a mattress. I, I it's a promotional thing. It's I, like the first idea for a Murphy bed. Yeah, like the some yeah. guy walks in and so goes, guy, "What if you?" Put that in the wall. Go oh. with me. Yeah. That's how Murphy Vet started. Yeah. So what's Nashville? What's the plan, man? The plan is uh I'm not I'm not sure what the plan is. I was I was very nervous about even I was trying to move and not tell anybody. Really? That was the idea. Because you're embarrassed? You were ashamed. I wasn't embarrassed. I think you still feel that everybody thinks you're gonna you just quit comedy. Oh yeah, you're out of the game. You're out of the game, you're done. Gave so, up. Yeah. Ran away. You still have that mentality. So I just literally did it and didn't tell anybody. I think I, when I talked to you at Moon Tower, you're still you're sort of still in this justifying period. You're like, hey, you know, show business is in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, the, my, my agent has an office there, though they primarily deal with country musicians. Like you, you didn't give me what I wanted out of it either. <laughs> like you, you want everybody just to be like, yeah, dude, I think that's so smart that you did it. And I don't think I got that from you. I got like... Oh yeah, uh, and I'm, <laughs> then I'm just like, oh boy. No, I think it's it. great. Yeah, you're 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 a comedian that that has a, a career in comedy. Mm -hmm. You decided that it's a good idea to turn your back on show business yeah. and move to Nashville and, and engage that show business. Well, they all every every time I'd go to meetings, they all think I live in Nashville anyway. Like I would go like just because of my yeah. accent or if I say something, right. and like they're just assume I live there. Now, what are yeah. you going to do though? So, how are you going to infiltrate? What's the plan? Are you going to Are you going to be the next generation of the of Blue like collar guys? Well, I, I didn't want to say it. Yeah, but no, it, it's out there. I mean, it's you know, it's already out it's there. Out there? No, no, no. It's not out there. No one's. Won't you? If you just get one of those blue collar guys to go out with you on tour, do you ha are you in contact with any of those fellas? Uh, some, some. Yeah, yeah. I've you talked, talked to, to Foxworthy? Ball. Uh, no, I've never talked to Foxworthy. I golfed. Uh, in Nashville, and Larry the Cable Guy was golfing in front of us. Who? The, Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, yeah, Dan? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I told him, I said, you can tell, I go, I can tell how long someone's been in comedy is if they refer to you by Dan. <laughs> yeah. Then I know that they've been around for a while. I remember him at the comedy store briefly. Yeah. 
he was a good guy. He was the nicest dude in the world. Yeah. And uh, real cool. And it looked, it's funny. Uh, so I'm a big Vanderbilt fan, which is the school in Nashville, yeah. and I did not go there. And so we took a, my dad, got, we took a picture with me and him. And he, he's- You uh, and Larry the Cable guy. Larry the Cable guy. And it's, uh, he is an uh, all Nebraska. Uh-huh. He's a big Nebraska fan. And so uh, he's got all Nebraska stuff on, camouflage, dressed just like- you would expect him to be dressed. I'm wearing all Vanderbilt stuff. So it almost looks like if the South is trying to create, if they're trying to create a new Larry the Campbell guy <laughs> and their their idea is like, we want to use, look, we're going to go, his school in Southern Nebraska will be Vanderbilt, will be a smart school. And people are like, well, that, you know, I don't know that could turn people off. You're like, here's the thing. He did not go there. That's that's the <laughs> that's twist. The hook. That's the hook that gets him in to go. You think, oh, is this guy a smart guy? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> he is a far from it, and just wears all the Vanderbilt stuff. So this special is one. It's 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 on Comedy Central. Yes, this Saturday, May second, which is the night of the Mayweather Pacquiao so the, fight. The, the Comedy Central special is on this Saturday. You can you, know, you can buy it May fifth. So uh, have you gotten to know your daughter at all? Uh, we have crossed paths at the house, <laughs> and uh, she seems uh, two and a half. She'll be three in yeah. July. Uh, she it went from like the first at the very beginning. I remember once we were home. We would see we'd go home for Nashville too. Like sometimes for like a month. Like yeah. if I was going to be on the road, it was just easier to go home. Yeah, and uh, we'd stay at my parents. And uh, so I remember one time I was packing, and she started packing like her Minnie Mouse suitcase, and was like, "Oh, I'm going with Daddy." You know, and that was brutal because it was like, you know, that one hurt. But now it's actually brutal for me because she's almost fine with it. Yeah. Now I come home for like, you know, uh, I, I was in New York and then I went home for a day. Then I flew out to Austin and uh-huh. uh, here. And so I've been gone for like two weeks besides one day. And she's just kind of like, you know, she's she's happy to see me. And then just kind of like, all right, see you. You know, <laughs> that's worse. Yeah. So you going on the road this week? She says, yeah. Did she say that? No. <laughs> she, goes, she goes, are you featuring or are you headlining? And I'm like, ah, oh, this weekend headline. You know, I'll probably do some guest spots. But, like, you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> like, uh, but, she, but you know, that probably has more to do with the fact that she has more friends around. She has more friends. And they. I, I think uh, they get to a point where they don't really like you or care about you. Yeah, this with is, FaceTime. FaceTime's big. How how long does that last, though? Yeah, I mean... It, uh, we're FaceTime for a little bit. Like, it's not... We're yeah. pretty good at, like, uh, you know, you don't want to keep anybody awkwardly... Yeah. Like where it's like, okay. Like, yeah. you know, where your daughter, your two year old daughter says, uh, okay, daddy, yeah. I'm done. All right. Good she luck just, with everything. I just see her moving her hands. Like, <laughs> he just, all right. He just keeps, yeah, he keeps <laughs> going. And to your going. wife, she's like, yeah. daddy's just, she's going, just yeah. oh, nonstop. nonstop. All right. You're on the road. Yeah. I almost like the idea too. I wanted to move and like almost see if anybody would know. Yeah. Just to be like, who would to know? prove a point no one would know because we don't ever see anybody right because we're either you're on the road or you go to your spot and you're right. done like i'd have to go if i want to go see you i have to go find you we got to be at a festival we have to be a festival yes and well, you can just go do it well that's well that's i think it's going to be good are you gonna i hope um, it's good well i had this whole idea i wasn't telling anybody and then here we are now so making really, the announcement for the special what's the special called full-time magic full-time magic yeah Oh, it's uh, based on your dad. Yeah, now your dad's right. out there doing the magic. He's doing. He, he goes on the road. Did you grow up with him going on the road? Yeah, yeah he went on the road all the time. Uh, I don't know if I ever like put it together. I don't think I pay attention to details of things to your parents because you got your own life to live. Yeah, but I yeah, and I don't like. And now when I think back, it's like I just would be like, I don't know. Like he just wouldn't be like a baseball game. You're like, I don't know why is he not here? You know. And yeah. And it's like now I'm like, oh, he was like 
do a magic yeah, somewhere. God knows, yeah, what kind yeah. of gig he was having to do. Like Does, in the 80s, like just some <laughs> awful road gig. And I'm just like, he should have came to my game. I don't know why he didn't come yeah, to my game. Yeah, he didn't come to your game because he's somewhere going like, is this your card? Yeah, yeah. He's somewhere doing that. Yeah. He didn't come watch me, I don't know, not Grow make up. it in baseball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't make it in baseball because he was out there, you know, pulling coins out of people's hair. Yeah. Out of their ears. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. son is is fatherless and wayward. He wasn't gone. He had a regular job. He taught. He was a teacher too. Oh, that's right. So he uh, does he do tricks for your kid? Mm-hmm. They they like it, and he uh, does stuff for all our nephews and nieces. He'll do and, parties if they're family. Yeah, yeah. People still ask me. Uh, they'll be like, "Hey, will you?" They want to get my dad to be a clown because he started as a clown. Yeah. And uh, they wanted him to be a clown for like their part, you know. And so you people, have to like tell my like, guys he's not. He doesn't do that anymore. You know what I mean? It's almost like, yeah, if someone wants you to come, hey, we come do some These are people you grew up with? Yeah. (laughs) Now they have kids and being like, hey, could we hire your dad? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he would still love, like, they just picture that he doesn't move up at all. It's like if you have someone, a friend that will be like, you know, you're doing, you're doing this great, you got your own show on TV and still be like, hey, could you do some time maybe at my wedding? And you're like, I don't 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 do, yeah, it's not what I do anymore, you know? I don't even know you that well. Yeah. Yeah. But all right, I mean, how much time do you want me to do it? And then you do it. And then you get. Well, that's so weird about people that they're so much in their own heads. How are they going to know that? I mean, yeah. they might not even know you're where you're at. They'll just see you around town and be like, "Did your dad still? Because we got kids who can have a birthday party." Yeah, you know what? My biggest one of my biggest thing when you mentioned me and Rolling Stone. Yeah, that was one of the first things that I felt, and I already did a few late nights and all that. Right, and that was the first thing where I felt like people like oh, were like, pretty like this guy's wild. a guy. Yeah, no, they were just impressed, oh, like good. friends, like yeah, yeah. high school friends. Were like that was like a oh yeah yeah that was like a oh wow. So the specials an hour, an hour. That's another one people don't know. They're like, uh, you tell them like I'm doing an hour, and they're like, oh yeah, didn't you already do that? You're like, no, that was a Comedy Central presents half nope. hour, <laughs> and you're you know it's like I'm, this is like much more time than that and harder to get. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. Like I don't, yeah. <laughs> they don't know the they, oh man, they don't. They, I don't know what you have to do. You have to be. Seinfeld before someone would be like, okay. That's exactly right. He's made it. That's exactly the truth. That is the worst part about what we do is that even my parents, it doesn't matter. They, my my father would be like, you know, you should maybe call Bill Maher, ask him how he did it. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm doing fine. I'm doing, it's cool, yeah. But they, but if you don't enter the culture like with like like everyone knows you, yeah, worry they even if you don't want to know, yeah, they know. But you're pretty far. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's crazy. I think my mom's the one that said that. She's like, didn't you already do one? And then I got really mad at my mom, who's so supportive. <laughs> but I was like, so she didn't like, understand. Yeah, I was so like, I was like, are you? I was like, are you serious? That was a half hour. Yeah, this I'm is like, a full I, hour. I like, this is a full. You think they just hand these out? Yeah. I'm like, do, do they? Yeah, they, it's pretty easy to get, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, so, all right, so we'll watch the special, and it's good to see you. Yes, thanks for- How, yeah. long, how long are you in town for? Just Till Friday. Oh, what are you doing? Uh, you know, Hollywood stuff. I don't know, meetings. I'm doing Matt at midnight. You've done that before? Mm-hmm. We did it. Me and you did it. Oh, yeah. that's right. It was a big day. I won, yeah. didn't I? Or yeah. No, I didn't. You and Natasha. Did Natasha win? I think Natasha. I got knocked out. Oh, that's right. That was sad. I felt bad for you. Oh, I was out of there. It was immediately. It's at the end that happened. Yeah, it's at the end, and then y'all stay, and then- And then the light goes out on you. Yeah, they make it a red light, really, yeah. like, just like- It was sad, man. I think a lot of people were upset by it. It was a shake By me getting- Yeah. yeah. It doesn't look good. Uh, it, it looked like it was uh, anti-Southerner. 
Well, a lot of stuff is, you know. Yeah, I know. So, well, that's it's that's, all coming back. That's your journey, though, is to to bring back the the pride to get the Civil War started back up. Sure. Well, I don't know if that's a good. That, it seems like it's already starting uh, well, <laughs> around yeah. the country. I think what you're trying to do you can is only hand out so many flyers. You bridge know. the gap. Yeah, yeah. Between us, yeah. you know, yeah. highbrow. I come in condescending. Going, I know what y'all are doing. Yeah. I know what we're doing. Yeah. Honestly, we're all on the same page. <laughs> we're all doing the same thing. You just have to listen. You just talk differently. Not- <laughs> yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. yeah stop projecting. Uh, will st- the, the, go the, attack Manhattan and L.A. Yeah. They're the only two different people. And then, you know, you just infiltrate with a bunch of you, talking the way you do with your sort of uh, homespun wisdom. Mm-hmm. And then we'll all come around. Yeah. All I right. Could, yeah. That's the, ad- that's the agenda. Yeah. So that's going to be my next well, special. All right, Nick. Well, it's great talking <laughs> yeah, to you. Nick Bargatze, full-time magic. <laughs> Nate Bargatze, full-time magic. All right, buddy. I'll talk Thanks to you for soon. doing it, buddy. Yeah. Love that guy. Watch that special, full-time magic. Saturday, May 2nd at midnight, 11 Central. I think it airs again right after. So, Robert Williams, man. I think that I'm, I'm sort of hung up on the idea You know, the different identities that we go through, the different personas we try on, not maybe, maybe not personas, but whatever you can get away with, with your attire, whatever that implies. The first time and the only time I was in rehab was back in uh, 88, maybe 87. And in there, there was a dude named Milo. And I don't know if Milo made it. I don't know where he's at or whether he's alive, but, you know, he came in pretty whacked out of his mind uh, from staying up too long on some substance, doing dope and doing coke and doing speed balls and hearing the voices and keeping guard uh, just in case someone wants to steal your brain, that kind of stuff. Quietly uh, sweating in the shed, you know, waiting for some shit to go down because the dispatch was was made if you understand what i'm saying but i got close to milo and he was a hardcore dude and milo had the uh a goatee before goatees were happening but this was not the standard goatee that goes along with the the bro shirt or the acid wash pants uh with the elaborate pockets uh no this was a a goatee that went along with a bike a motorcycle and maybe a little jail time maybe not but he was a hardcore motherfucker and he smoked Lucky Strikes. And, you know, when I was in rehab that first time, I was pretty shattered. Uh, whatever personality I had had become uh, a bit fragmented, a bit wobbly. Uh, it was fragile to begin with. So I remember in, when I was, in, uh, was, I was in rehab, I listened to Milo tell stories and then he had a carton of Luckies and I was smoking those Luckies until they hurt my fucking... My fucking lungs, I take his luckies. I buy a pack of my own because I want to be like him. And then I, I grew out after, after, uh, after rehab, I grew out the, uh, the, the Fu Manchu thing. But not it was before they were hip or cool. This is the, the late 80s. So you know, I was going for the hard look. I'd pull my hair back into a, a longish ponytail. And I had my round glasses on that were tinted all the time. And I had my, uh, my jailbird biker goatee. And I wore my long trench coat and I was about what? How old was I? About 25 years old. 
And I think I was wearing the Milo costume for a while because I thought it made me look like I, could, I had been places. And I had. I had. I had lost my mind, but I'd never been to jail. I never rode a bike, and I don't think I could kill a man. But I think that my beard looked like it could at that time. Why did I tell you that story? Because there's something about what Robert Williams sort of represents about the 60s, about hot rods, about motorcycles, about cars, about speed, about you know unleashing your imagination, about that darker part of the 60s that sort of I believe I always aspired to. And through the Milo costume, I believed I had been there. Eventually, I shaved it and uh, took me about a decade or two to get straight with who I was. But I think I'm here now. I got I to gotta tell you, I was nervous to interview Robert Williams because he was intimidating to me. I went to his uh, opening. I met him briefly there. My buddy Coop, Chris Cooper, uh, the poster artist and painter, uh, is a big fan, obviously, and very influenced by Robert Williams and his personal friend. And he facilitated an introduction at the opening. I met him, and uh, Robert, in my mind, very quickly dismissed me, and I, I projected a lot onto that. I just, I just didn't think I was hard enough or serious enough, or you know, like the real deal enough for him to even register. I, I gave him. I projected that gift on him that he could judge me thoroughly through to my soul uh, that quickly. But I, I was nervous. So I, I met him over at the gallery where he uh, did the show, where his art was hanging. Uh, he was with his wife, who uh, who was not in the room. We were in the office there, so you might hear a phone ringing occasionally. Um, and I, you know, I was intimidated, and you know, I I, I really wanted to to have a, a good conversation with him because I. I, uh, I I do respect his uh, his work. So here's me <laughs> trying not to be nervous with Robert Wood. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a, tre- I'm a tremendous fan of yours, and I have been for a long time. You could do worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had a I, the two wives ago. Uh, the woman that became my first wife worked at Shafrazi when in really yes, and I remember like having knowing that you were there and going to see the things. The first time I saw the canvases in person, like I'd only seen them in books. Yeah. And there was that moment where, you know, you see someone's work outside of a book and you're like, holy shit. Like the, the layers of work that, that went into those paintings and all your paintings, I, just, I couldn't believe it. It was like mind-blowing to me to see it live. Yeah. Is that, a, is that an odd thing to hear? No, 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 it's not because it's, there's, 
there, there's uh, when you see a, a painting in reality, there's there's a certain disappointment and, and also a certain pleasure in seeing it. A, ex- a printed formalizes it. Yeah, you know, when you right. see when you actually see it, you can actually see hand strokes and suffering and energy and thought into something. You know, <laughs> when you see the painting. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's exactly the whole texture of the thing. Yeah. Now, like in in terms of your like styles of of, of how you painted. It, it was much more laborious at a different point in time, right? In terms of the techniques you used. Well, uh, I, I've never been lucky enough to find the easy way out on these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've, I, every, I've always in my mind think, well, I better find some shortcuts. But on the other hand, I think, well, uh, here, here, here's a nicer way to do it. And that nicer way to do it is always more time consuming. And, and like, what was the nicest way you found where, well, where it was uh, taking you well, a year the, to get the better effect? Yeah, say, sure. I, I said, well, this this will give a remarkable effect, and hell, that's another two or three days doodling around with that, you know? Right, right. So it's a, kind of a losing game. It's it's not a rational person's uh, occupation. You know? But you, I mean, obviously, you have to be somewhat uh, obsessed with it. I, I mean, in order to do it, I mean, it's more than obsession. Yeah, it's more than obsession, and and it's more than fulfillment. It's uh, it's like your worth. Yeah, you know, it, it's like when I was young, <clears throat> I wanted to be a slick artist and be a big operator. Yeah, be a hip dude. Yeah, attract the chicks and everything. And sure. I, 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 I did an immense amount of studying of uh, technical painting tomes and books and whatnot on technique, things from back from the 1850s on to modern times. And I memorized all these color combinations and what paintings were transparent, what paintings weren't transparent and whatnot. And uh, my ego projected me into learning this stuff. But then as I got into the realities of selling the stuff and finding even a venue that would dare show the stuff, I... Uh, I was kind of, kind of at odds there. But by this time, by my time of my late thirties, the painting owned the, the skill owned me. It was right. no longer me trying to be a slick egotist. Yeah, you know, um, uh, the, the the practice every day and the habits and the mixing the paints owned me, and I could do it automatically. See? Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, I was left with. Uh, you know, I got I've got this thing I've developed here, and uh, I'm not getting any recognition. But on the other hand, uh, nobody else seems to be able to do it, and uh, and I I'm not going to do anything else. You know, and at, at the same time, I was doing comic books too. I was involved in Zap Comics, sure. and, and my same problem developed there. I got into spending too much time in the comic books. Uh, a good comic book artist would do at least a page a day, and it was taking me a week a page. You know, so I just uh, there's like something wrong with my um, mental value of uh, being practical and rational. There's but wasn't a it a, pr- it's a perfectionism, though? Really, right? I mean, you had a process. Yeah, and- yeah. Um, but I, I caught on real early on what Salvador Dali said: if uh, uh, if you're looking for perfection, forget it. You'll never find it. You know. Uh, <laughs> but, but is that an? In, but is that something you can actually do intellectually? I mean, if you're wired to say like, well, this isn't quite good enough. I mean, you're never you're never going to get around that. Well, <clears throat> let, let 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 me point this out. To you. Yeah. If you're a young artist, say you're ten or twelve, and you're just taking art classes at school, and you sit down to a canvas or a drawing, <clears throat> you have an idea. There's a chance that when you get through with that project, that it's going to be maybe 
25% of what you in, intended. And you do project after project, and it'll probably be about 25% of what you intended, unless it's a tic-tac-toe or something. Sure, sure, you know, sure. Or yeah. a stick figure. So when you get to be in your late teens, your early 20s, and you start into college, you know, and you, you get up to maybe... 40, 45%. But by this time, you've learned to keep your mouth shut and let, when you get a piece of artwork done, you give the impression that this was what, what exactly. your total intention was. Yeah. So you learn yeah. to shut your mouth. Right. You know. right. But you're still hitting about 45. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, you get, you, you get into your late 20s and your 30s and you sit down to do a piece of artwork and you got it in your head. Well, that's, that's going to be, if you're pretty slick, that's going to be about 60 or 65%. Right, right. Now, I'm an old man, I'm 72, and I can hit about 80% now. So I have an idea, and I sit down to, to do it. Right. But I don't tell people that. See? No. I tell them, no, it's, it's a 100-pointer. You know, every, lick, every lick was intended. Yeah, right. That's just the nature of genius. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> now, when I first met you, it was interesting, because I, I, I didn't know if I, I'd put you off or not, because I, I met you with Coop, who, who has also done the show and who I'm friends yeah. with. And he's the a first, good friend, he's a, he's a great guy. And, and and the first thing I said to you was like, you know, I grew up in Albuquerque. And and you said, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, you grew up in Albuquerque. I did. And I thought like, well, wow. this is a surefire way to connect with the dude well. in, 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 in a heartbeat. And and make an impression, but you were like, uh, oh boy. No, yeah. no, that no. You you misread that. You, you yeah, you misread. Oh, that. Yeah. It's just uh, you're you're a lot younger than me, and I wonder what your life was like in Albuquerque compared to mine. And yeah, well, what was I left? was I was there in the forties and fifties. I so. can't imagine, man. So what mm -hmm. was there? Like there was Kirkland well, Air Force mother, Base. And, no, there's three Air Force bases. Yeah. There was Sandia, right. Kirtland, and Manzano. Right. My mother said it perfectly when I was a little kid. She says, "Watch out for Albuquerque, because it's still a frontier town," uh -huh. and she couldn't have said it better. Uh huh. Because between uh, criminal activity on the street. And the brutal police department, you know, you still, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was in fights and in jail all the time in Albuquerque. How'd you end up there? Well, you, you, you mean in fights or in jail? No, in Albuquerque. How, well, I was born there. Yeah, I was born there in '43. My parents were married and divorced four times. My father was from the Deep South, so I was going back and forth from Alabama, Georgia, um, Florida, back to Albuquerque. Yeah, you know. So I come up from not only a broken home, but like a terribly uh, torn apart home. And over and over again. Over and over again. <laughs> the same characters. And my, yeah, my father had a sizable amount of money. He was fairly wealthy. What was his so racket? My father's uh, had the largest drive-in restaurant in the world that serviced 100 cars at one time and had its own theater and its own radio station. Where was this? Montgomery, Alabama. Wow. And his good friends were Hank Williams and Gene Krupa and a lot of people. You know, he, he, uh, they came through and, and well, he knew Hank he Williams did. very well. And you remember him as a kid? Oh yeah. <clears throat> My, um, and but then when I go back to Albuquerque, yeah. I'm just totally broke. You know, right. so I went from this one lifestyle to the other. You know, and then in Albuquerque, it was a, a real uh, reality check. You know, of fighting continually and getting in trouble and. Uh, I don't know. I've developed a lot of character in me. But on the other hand, my father was a military man, and he sent me to a strict military school. So I was 
I, Two sides. I, I, I was raised with this this inferiority complex that had to be uh, that had to face up to Nietzsche. You know? Yeah. The yeah. only way I was only way I was going to get out of my inferiority complex is start Nietzsche in it. You know. <laughs> Go so above. Start, yeah, I had to stand up to Frederick Nietzsche. You know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Grit my teeth. Yeah. You know, and fight these guys on the street and get my ass kicked and whatnot. But it happened time after time. You know. When when you were in, were in Albuquerque, what high school did you go to? I went to Highland High. I went to Highland High. I graduated from Highland High. I'm sorry. I didn't. <laughs> I was thrown out. Right behind the Highland Theater. Yeah. Right there. Do you, do you remember that um, that bowling alley over by the High, Highland High? I don't know if it was there when I was there. If it was still there. Was there was a rumble there with over 300 people, and they were in there throwing. I was involved in it, and they were. Uh, really? They were throwing bowling balls. Pachucos went in there throwing bowling balls, and there was knife fights, and people were stabbed. And, oh, so it was, was the, the Pachucos, which later became the Cholos? Well, we used to call them Chooks. There was, right. There was the Stomps, which were the Cowboys, and then there was the Chooks. What were you? I was kind of a. Well, I ran with both of them, really. Right, you right, know, right. Kind of, you could move through. All fields. Pathetically. <laughs> Pathetically. Well, you must have been a funny I, guy. Uh, well, usually it's a I sense my, of humor that I had my through. antennas out. You know, I was, yeah. a, I was a young kid that learned real quick. You know, I'd walk down, when I'd walk down the street, I'd always look two blocks down. Yeah. I learned real quick. You know, walk down the street, look two blocks down. Because you might want to cross the street. Right. You know? Yeah. There's, well, there's three of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what was that? Well, I, I, I don't want to go in. I, I have so many of these vulgar street scene stories that could fill a book let's, let's go on about the art okay. i I'm, I'm completely willing okay. to do that where did uh, like i saw a picture of you uh and i don't remember where maybe it was in the malicious uh that that collection that big book what was it malicious resplendent yes of you at the albuquerque state fair yes and you know i was sort of obsessed with the state fair you know, I was obsessed yeah. with I, I I worked there as a concessionaire, and I, when that fair, when that carnival moved, I went with it. And what were you doing? Pitch them in, win them out, take home some dishes. You know? Oh, yeah? Yeah, I played the cigarette game and a number of games. I, I was, I've always been obsessed with, like, uh, like after I saw, I had a book called Very Special People, you know, and, uh, and then I, it, it, I was obsessed with the anomalies, human, with freaks. And I remember going to the State Fair to see Ronnie and Donnie. Well, no, see, that's after my time. See, sure, sure. I, was right a, I, I saw freaks. There were, there was freaks in the 10 and 1 show when I was there that I saw back in the early 50s. Right. You know. Because I feel like in... in Eco and Ico, the sheep-headed men from Labrador, Johnny Ick. Uh, Johnny Ick was still around? Yeah. And you saw those guys. And yeah, the reason I bring that up... I talked to them. I, I, I traveled with them. You tra traveled with Johnny Ick? And uh, other characters, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And because I have to, I have to believe that that informed your your eye somehow. Absolutely, the tawdry side of cultures always fascinated me. It's always seemed romantic to me. It was like seemed like the kind of thief society that was in Hunchback in Notre Dame. Right. You know? and it's a very very dangerous world to function in as the lower classes and the criminal classes. And I was always attracted by the romance of petty criminals. And I, later I understood what my problem was. Was It wasn't really that I had these criminal tendencies. It was just that I was in a small town like Albuquerque that d hadn't developed a full bohemian community. It wasn't there. It, it, was, it was very small around the uh, University of New Mexico. Right. I was always in trouble with the police and whatnot. And then uh, I, I, I'd become a, a, a chess hustler. At, around University of New Mexico, and I was just a kid. But you were compelled towards that scene, looking for 
the, yeah, uh, the yeah, artists. I, the I very much involved myself in the, in the beatnik movement in the late 50s. You did? <clears throat> yeah. In New Mexico? There wasn't like a true literary beatnik world that we think of, the Orthodox, <clears throat> but there was uh, an urban beatnik world that had created all over the United States from seeing sorry movies like, well, not sorry movies, but questionable Hollywood interpretations of the beatnik culture. Right. One of them was the beat generation. Mm -hmm. The other one that I remember sta standing out really a lot was Bell Book and Candle with Kim Novak. Mm -hmm. So those kind of set the pattern for the United States of America to have uh, a beatnik idea of how to conduct themselves. Mm -hmm. I was very, very, I mean, I was, 15, 16, very much into that world. You know? and were you, Hung were you out at coffee shops and sure. smoked marijuana. And, and were you, you doing uh, art at that point? I was always doing some kind of art. What was going on? How, where did it start? <clears throat> where did you start defining yourself or knowing that that was where you were going? Well, before I had a developed memory, my parents would sit me down on a big roll of butcher paper with crayons, sure. you know, and I'd just take off. You know? <laughs> yeah. I did uh, a big red skeleton bone for bone, and it was red skeleton the comedian, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I was just out of diapers. And then there was a pop song called The Devil in My Darling's Eye, and I did a big eye with a devil in it, you know, and I'm just a little bitty baby. Mm -hmm. And in, I think, the fifth grade, they selected about six of the gifted kids, six or eight of the gifted students, to do a mural at the end of the hall. Mm -hmm. All these young, talented children would do their efforts, and then I'd draw back and look and see the thing here and a thing here and a thing here, and I'm the only one that could go up there and do a landscape tying them all together. I could only <laughs> right. guy could unify. Yeah. So I really didn't get to do my little thing. My thing was unifying, and then if something was big, I'd put it on a hill close. Big, if something small, you know, I could have yeah. perspective, understanding, the stage things. So. Uh -huh. So I had that innate uh, ability. So when did you, like, when, when the beatnik thing started happening, did you have some sort of aesthetic that you were gunning for? Like, you wanted to be part of? Well, I'm, I, real early on, was taken with surrealism. Right. Really young. And I presumed that the, the, the beatnik thing it was part and parcel of that. But I, what I, didn't, I didn't have a real good grasp of the time of what abstract expressionism was. Where'd you developed. see surrealism first? It was um, the book. omnipresent. It was sure. ubiquitous. It's in books and whatever. Dolly mostly? Yeah, mostly yeah. Dolly. Yeah. And then that, of course, you know... Um, Dolly was a Johnny come lately and then he was thrown out. He was kind of parasited off surrealism and then got the whole name of surrealism, you know, and yeah. then they kicked him out and that's yeah. still run off with the name of surrealism to right. this day, you know. Yeah. Well, he lived to make bank, that guy. He did. Yeah. He did. He was an operator. No yeah. doubt about it. He should have been a wrestling promoter. <laughs> he looked like one in a way. <laughs> he was enormously talented. Oh, yeah. A rich, rich imagination. He had a carny sort of disposition. You know, I, I, I went to a lecture, and there was this gal that, that knew him personally, and mm -hmm. she said that when you were with him just around the house or something, he talked perfectly normal. But when he got around a bunch of people, he started affecting that exaggerated accent. Right. right. Yeah. <clears throat> Why not? Put on a show. Yeah. 
So, all right, so you're in Albuquerque. Did you ever know a uh, guy named Gus Blaisdell by any chance? No, no. No. He owned a bookstore later. I just don't even, I don't even know when he got there. Well, I'd left in 63, and I kind of burned all my bridges. So. You left running? Well, it was a good thing I did get out. I yeah. probably ended up in Santa Fe prison. A lot of my friends did end oh, up really? in Santa Fe prison, yeah. Do you still have friends in New Mexico? <laughs> Just relatives. Just oh yeah, relatives. a few hot rod buddies. I, when I go back to Albuquerque, I see a few hot rods. Is buddies. that when you first started doing hot rods? No, no. I first started when I was in Alabama in 1955 at 12 years old. I got my dad to buy me a 34 Ford coupe. Yeah. So I, I was on to the hot rods way early. I started reading Hot Rod magazine about 53. So that was like that was in your consciousness. That was something that drove you literally. That's right. And because, like, you know, one thing I was like when I started going through stuff today, the intensity of no, no matter how long it, it may take you to, to, to paint one of your paintings, I mean, the intensity and the velocity of the thing coming at you in all the ways that it comes at you, there, it, you know, there's no avoiding it, and there's, there's almost a speed to it. Well, what I do, I have to kind of disregard the, the concept that this is going to be a. a a decoration in a house. I, I, I see my paintings closer to literature than I do to. Uh, well, yeah, there's a, the titles to, are to, literature. To, you know, uh, if if you if you have a sophisticated home, you have a coffee table with uh, classic books on it to show people how intelligent you are. You'd have like maybe War and Peace or Two Years Before the Mast or Tales of Two Cities, and it's um, r- really interesting literature. But it, it, as long as it's sitting on the coffee table and the pages are closed, it's okay because there's stuff in there that would make your hairline recede, it sure. would uh, create diarrhea in children. Uh, yeah. So, but um, unfortunately, art has to be tamed and knocked down because it's, people can just look right at it, and that, that, that's a really a sad thing that uh, you know, literature is allowed to totally eclipse graphics. You know? Comic book has um, kind of challenged that. that. Comic book is one of the most important things of the 20th century. Fifty years from now, you look back on the 20th century, and you'll see that the cartoon dominated the art world. The Forever. cartoon was the most from the beginning. It was the most important thing of the 20th century. What was the first time I ever saw people having sex? Like, the, like uh, you know. I agree with you. I've got some examples in this show here. Yeah. Those eight-page Bibles. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 1951. I was. Eight years old, and some kid showed me one of them eight-page Bibles that he stole from his dad. I'm looking at that, and ah, that's how that works. Exactly. That's how that works. The first time I saw it was a Spain picture. Like, it was uh, it was in an underground comic collection mm-hmm. of two yeah. bodies in space, with and they're having mm-hmm. sex. And I was like, that's how it works. <clears throat> and then about uh, a few years after that, yeah. someone showed me a pornographic photograph at a baseball game. And the fellow was a, an ex-GI that just was stationed in Japan, and he came back and he had these pictures of these Japanese people in the act of sexual intercourse. And that didn't look interesting to me at all. That didn't look interesting to me at all, the seeing this guy's buttocks on top of another woman, right. on top of a woman. It just, I, that wasn't as good as the eight-page Bible. Eight right. Page, yeah. <clears throat> well, when you, uh, when you set out, to, you left Albuquerque to come here and, and study art practically? Uh, yeah. Yes, and wh- where was the first place you studied? I came out here to go to Los Angeles City College because it was only $6.50 a unit. Uh-huh. See, so I, I spent two years at Los Angeles City College, and I was nominated for the dean's list, and I did um, 
What were you working on specifically? Just learning uh, technique? Yeah, sculpture and painting. And they, the college newspaper there, the Collegiate, approached the art department for a cartoonist, an editorial cartoonist, and nobody could draw. <clears throat> you know, they approached the entire student body. Nobody could draw. So I, yeah, I'll do it. I, man, I, what a wonderful opportunity to 20 years old to get in print. Yeah. You know, the first time to get something published, you know. What so, were you drawing? Mm-hmm. Just editorial cartoons or whatever the current subject was and uh i won an award it was an it was a national contest and i came in second nationally yeah you know of all the junior colleges and um after i quit the school i still had to come over to me to get editorial cartoons done you know but i wasn't even a student anymore so you still making money doing that it wasn't very much money it was enough money for me to get married on but uh, you know i let it build up for a long long time before i bothered with it you know. so all right so after that where, where'd you go next to, to well continue i took the... I, I went out and got a job and then i took extension courses uh, i married my wife suzanne that i met at still City married Co- yeah still married great and it was hard getting a real good job. I got a job as a art director for Black Belt Karate Magazine. And then at night, I would take extension courses at Chenard's. Yeah, so I, and that I, was a big deal? That was a very big deal, history-wise now, because all your major artists in Los Angeles, the older ones, all went to Chenard. Did you jive with that school? No. Why? Not at all. <clears throat> well, when I, when I came out to California... And I was a pretty good draftsman, and I was so enthusiastic, so enthusiastic, ready to get into the arts. Yeah. And I had, you know, all my uh, influences were comic books and surrealism and B-movie posters and hot rod magazines and all this uh, second-class influences. And so I come out here, and lo and behold, it's right in the middle of the abstract expressionist period. And drawing was considered absolutely out of the question. Really? Not even as, as a groundwork? Not even, you, know, you got to learn this first? No one thought that way? They had drawing and painting classes, but it was contour drawing of quick studies of a nude model. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't, you had to knock that thing out pretty quick. You know? Right. You couldn't sit and nurse on this thing and get the shade tones right and whatnot. You couldn't work on muscle tone. You just, just quick impressions right. of a nude model, you know. <clears throat> So that's the closest thing they had to academic drawing. Now, their philosophy was that uh, the representational art was a cheat. And it, uh, was, it was a phony thing because you're trying to make uh, something look three-dimensional, and it's actually two-dimensional. And the arts, the arts uh, after the Second World War, especially in the 50s and early 60s, was the art of truth and honesty. And you, arts should reflect the honesty of the artist doing it and the impressions of the artist doing it. And if you, if you paint it, it should look like paint. Hmm. If you chiseled wood, it should show the marks of the chisel. If you welded a sculpture, it should show the burnt slag on it because that's the nature of it, see. Of course, completely disregarded that 550 years ago, oil paint was invented to be tight you know that's the nature of oil paint if you can do it yeah wood can be polished and show the grain that's also the nature of it yeah metal sculptures can be ground down and polished sure and plated but they disregarded that now did you think it was bullshit 
No, no, because I was a young uh, student and I realized I had to discipline myself to things that I wasn't used to and I'd had to take this in. Say, I had to, but I still had this tendency to tighten up. And then I had other, I had contemporaries, friends that were Otis and Chenards and UCLA that referred to me as the illustrator. Yeah. That I was going in the wrong direction. That I really would not be a painter because my stuff's tight and it spoke of three dimensions. It's, so that got hung on you. That, 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 that got hung on you back then. Before it, well, you it was a slander. Right. It was a slander. Now, what they don't understand, and what they, I would have to explain to them if I could get them by the scrub of the deck and drag them through five decades to face me now, was not only was there length and depth and width, it was what would you call it? There was um, uh, the element of time. So that's the fourth dimension. Say something moving in the picture, that's time. And if there's something that's it's abstractly created in it, that's a violation of physics, which is the fifth dimension, see? So not, so not only am I cheating in one direction here, I'm cheating in three more directions with the ability to have the mental capability to, to search things out. Yeah, yeah. any one of your canvases, it, it definitely, yeah. you time travel, there's story, yeah. there's a, a defying the physics, well, abstraction. There, there is a, a situation that exists in art schools and I, I, I really support art schools, and I do support abstract expressionism, and there is no bad art. But if something does exist, it should be pointed out that if you had a hundred artists, and three of them were technical masters, and 97 of them could only pick their nose, the art of the time would be picking your nose. <laughs> See, the, the, the three masters would be totally disregarded because they were uh, creating a problem for the 97. Right. There's a, right. there a graphic democracy, an art democracy. And I, had, I was facing that violation of that democracy when I was young. Because if I did real slick stuff as a kid in art school, I was showing off and I was trying to set the standards too high for the other young people that... Uh, had other inclinations. So you were you were uh, an outsider on both counts. You were you were creatively an outsider, but also technically. I, I always threatening. End, I always end up outside the situation. I always in violation of the right social situation that I function. In. I don't know what that is. Well, it's, it's like it's the great spirit of fuck you. That might might be yeah that immature. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's immature contrariness that I have. But 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 I, I don't know if it's immature. But I think that democ that democracy you're talking about only applies to maybe uh, that that education because once you get you know into the art business, it's, there's certainly no democracy at all. No, no. But like okay, so so. I, I'm seeing this these, these two experiences when you first get out here, uh, you know, and you go through technical and and you and you get your shit together, so you're a wizard technically, and then you go to this, you know, sort of poetic of the time school. I imagine this was the first building block of this sort of like, well, I can do anything you can do, and I can do it better, mm -hmm. and I can integrate it, and you, you know, go fuck yourself. Well, look, let me <laughs> let me feign humility here. It's not it's not that I am such a great artist and so slick. It's just that everyone else is so fucking bad. <laughs> <clears throat> but, the, but the intelligence of, of, you know, what I think is your sense of humor, which I appreciate deeply, <clears throat> is that, you, you know, you can turn anything on its head and you can outdo what you're satirizing. So, well, <clears throat> okay, I have to contradict you here. What I do is not primarily humor. It goes that one step beyond humor. 
it's abstract thinking. It's, it it okay. has no punchline. Okay. It's not made to make you giggle. It's made to... Blow your mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's designed to, to, to realize that a situation here that's come from a mind that completely functions a lot more uh, um, investigatively and, um, and uh, off uh, any logical, uh, practical train tracks you know. right no and, and you, but you have all these uh, the the intelligence and the skills in place to to do it on several different levels yeah. within one canvas yeah and you're, you're so you're blowing minds yeah, i appreciate you saying that you're very generous with me so so after you get out of that the the abstract expression mind fuck that you were you were you were then subject came, to then came pop art and uh, conceptualism and right. You say, well, uh, pop art. You're getting that's realism. Well, yeah, it's realism, but it's it's uh, it's um, um, art that's been appropriated. That's right. You, 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 a, can, you cannot yeah. step out of pop art and do something that's free thinking. It has to be something appropriated. It's right, a reflection the, of the things around you. But who? Def, but the people that define whether that's popular or not is such a small group of people, and it's you know it's rooted in like two or three well, intellectuals. That, you the, know. Uh, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is made up of failed artists. You know. They're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But so, where did you go after that? Way, how did you get from uh, from there to uh, to to Big Daddy Roth and 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 well, that I, I was a container after being the art director for Black Belt Magazine, and I I lost that job, and then I had to go get another job, something art related, and I ended up desperately taking a job as a container designer for Warehouse Corporation. And that was a, a, a junior executive job where I wore a suit and tie. What does that mean, a warehouser? Con, a container? Warehousers are one of the biggest container companies okay. in the world. They're forestry, have giant forestry and lumber and, and uh, cardboard boxes. So this was like a, an engineering job almost? Well, I had to make commercial boxes for products. You know, I, was design, I just designed boxes. And this yeah. was during my psychedelic period, so it didn't take them long to realize that I wasn't executive stock. So you were taking acid so, in designing boxes? Yeah, so they fired me. <laughs> so then I fumbled around and by sheer divine providence, uh, got a job with Ed Roth. I, I'd met him years late, years earlier at a car show, and then I went to the unemployment agency, and they said, uh, we, we don't have anything for you. We have this one thing, but nobody will take the job, and the conditions are not right they're a little filthy down there and i said what is it they says well it, uh, they're looking for an art director down at uh, ed big daddy ross i said give me the phone yeah and you knew him you knew his work uh, yeah, and you knew yeah. his, oh, his yeah. magazine i was a big fan of him i knew him i'd made him at car shows and i was a hot rodder you know yeah. and i went down there and talked to him and he looked at my portfolio and he says well if, if i knew you were alive i'd have hunted you up Oh, really? Yeah. So it was right so away. I, yeah, I just got this incredible job with an enormous amount of money, and then I could come and go and dress the way I wanted. I just had deadlines to fill. I was in charge of his advertising. Well, what was it like over there? I mean, when you said, when you were in the hot rod, so you could you could take apart a car and put it back together and, you know, chop a car up. You yeah. did that stuff. Yeah. So what they were doing over there was, like, above and beyond, right? Yeah, yeah, but I could stand here and talk to them. They weren't doing anything I didn't totally comprehend. Right, right, and you guys hit it off. Oh, you? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and your job over yeah, there? Yeah, well, when he understood that at 12 years old, I had a 34 Ford 5 one a coupe, you know, I mean. You were in. Yeah. Was, <laughs> Where did he come from? His father, he, he, when he was born, he was living in uh, Beverly Hills. And yeah. His father was Mary Pixford's chauffeur. Really? And his father was a German that belonged to the German Bund. Uh-huh. 
you know, real right-wing, strict German. Uh -huh. He hated driving Mary Pickford around because on a couple of occasions he, she made him go pick up fertilizer in the limousine, you know. Huh. So Ed was an American kid that, uh, from German parents. That, uh, he, I think he started out uh, as a doing window design for Sears Roebuck, and he was a remarkable sign painter and interested in hot rods. And huh. you know. I wonder if it, I wonder <laughs> if like for some reason I wonder if the Eric von Stroheim character in Sunset Boulevard was based on his dad. Well, there's a comparison there. there yeah. I, I think about that, yeah. You do? <laughs> yeah, I think about that. It just like, struck me like immediately. Like, yeah. Huh. Well, that's an impression I wanted to give you, yeah. <laughs> that's the guy. <laughs> you can see him in a chauffeur's uniform with jodhpurs and black boots and a cap. You know. <laughs> and a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah standing <laughs> by, as the doorman to the limousine. You know, right, Standing right. there pissed off because he had to go get fertilizer and bring it back in a Rolls Royce or a Duesenberg right. or something. Yeah, that's huge car. <clears throat> yeah. So when you were over there, what was your, what was your prime... What were your jobs? I mean, what was the, the title well, job? My, my first responsibility was get out about six ads a month. But then after, besides that, I designed T-shirts and decals, and I worked helping work on the cars a little bit. And I was just, uh, and <clears throat> since I was the only one there with a formal art education, I was kind of a front man there. When people come in and was talking about art and careers and stuff, he'd always get me to. Oh yeah, go yeah. go do some PR. I, 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 yeah, I had uh, human resources. I had the vocabulary. And yeah, I, no one's going to snow me, you know. So and it was a scene over there, right? It was a remarkable scene, a remarkable scene, a gypsy carnival scene. <clears throat> There's people coming in and out all day. There'd be movie stars and rock stars and just bikers and police and the FBI and beautiful chicks and it's just it's just like. He would go out of town on uh, touring with a, every year. He'd make a new car show car, uh -huh. and then he would go on the circuit <clears throat> like a carnival. And then I would stay there and work with the crew that did T-shirts and stuff. And when he'd come back, he'd have all these followers come back. You know, so he had he'd a, picked up over the United States. He'd have all these hanger-oners, charismatic guy. Yeah, and then they'd come in with some good-looking gal, you know, and then three weeks everybody had worked there had gonorrhea you know <laughs> it was it was it was beyond colorful you know um it, but it was like the hollywood elite like dug it and they, yeah, they would come yeah, down the rock hang, world dug it yeah you know and the car world is in the middle of the car and motorcycle world and now what'd just, you learn from him like in terms of how it influenced you know how you moved through because obviously cartooning was and he had a very specific well, I gained, style i gained confidence mm -hmm. i, I I, I couldn't be snowed anymore by the art world. I had confidence, you know. And I, I, uh, it, it, I was the first artist Ed allowed me to sign my name to the works. Mm -hmm. So I started getting a following, you know. And so um, I learned to, to do T-shirts. I really learned how to do black and white with, with not a pen but with a brush like a real cartoonist, you know, mm -hmm. a real comic book artist. And then <clears throat> I'd, I'd met Stanley Mouse who's Ed's competitor, a car shirt designer at car shows. But Stanley Mouse had given up the car show circuit, and he went up to San Francisco, <clears throat> and he became one of the founders of the psychedelic poster movement, one of the, what's yeah, called the, the Big yeah. Five. Right. You know. Who are they? That's Griffin and Mouse? Rick, say Rick Griffin, Mouse, Kelly, Wes Wilson, and Victor Moscoso. Those were the Big Five that got into Life magazine in 66. That was a big article. That was a big article. Before we get up to San Francisco, what happened to, to Big Daddy Roth? What ultimately happened to that empire? That's a, that's a whole show in itself. That's oh, a couple yeah. hours. Yeah, he uh, he was the one that championed 
outlaw motorcycles. He was the first professional person. There's always been, well, they used to be called fat bobs mm-hmm. before choppers, and then they got to be called choppers. And they were because of the motorcycle gangs, they were, they were really despised by society. And the hot rod world didn't want anything to do with them. I mean, he he got involved with these guys, like the angels. Well, of, of, I don't want to go into names here right. because I don't want any retribution right. here. But okay. he got involved with a lot of really brutal bikers, and uh, he he promoted, uh, he come up with the first outlaw biker magazine, you know, and he really promoted it. And he had a lot of trouble with them. And uh, the IRS and the FBI moved in on him because they thought he was involved with these biker gangs, and they were under the impression that he had like some ruling control and they just enacted the, what's called the RICO Act right. the gangster uh, uh, racketeering act so they thought he was a kingpin <clears throat> yeah so they moved in the IRS just went just went right up his ass and then the FBI was on him all the time and um the, the IRS found out that he, he was maybe a fumbling in his books, but he was more honest than anybody. He was really a patriot, real loved America, you know. Yeah. So he, he wouldn't cheat. In fact, any dealings I ever had with him, or see any dealings I'd ever seen with anyone, everyone always got the best of him, you know. Right. Because he, he was a fair guy. He was a, he was a very sweet and honest guy. <clears throat> but um, anyway, uh, where was I going to so go? So they with? crushed him. Yeah, they 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 eventually crushed him, and uh, I had that job as art director for five years, and his wife left him, and it broke him, and then he he, he finally got a job at Knott's Berry Farm as a sign painter. He was really down yeah. on his luck and a low ebb, and then fortunately nostalgia came and picked him right back up again. Oh yeah, the Rat Fink, uh, yeah. the re- resurgence of Rat Fink. Yeah, and what what about Von Dutch? We didn't talk about him at all. He seemed to be a, a well. Von Dutch was very intelligent, very intelligent, uh, enormously talented, very imaginative. But he was extremely right wing, right wing to a fault. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a nice way to say a uh, lot of things. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was one of my childhood heroes. You know? Really, you yeah. from. Be, for the well, for, I remember seeing him magazines fifty three, fifty four. You know, he's when it started pinstriping as a hot uh-huh. rod affectation, and he brought back flames from the thirties. You know, and he was a very imaginative guy. I could really relate to him until and then I got to know him, and then people warned me about him. They says, "Well, you know, watch out for him because he he goes crazy." And I got to be good friends with him, and you know, we'd stay up till the sun comes up drinking beer and got along real well. And then one day he turned on me and threatened to kill me. You know, and so um, they were right. Watch out for him. You know, he's mentally ill. Right, he was mentally ill. And well, you know, that happens if you live in the world of artists. You know, you're going to meet a few mentally ill people. Well, he would he would go into a biker bar. He he reacted to people violently and. Uh, He'd go into a biker bar full of bikers, and he'd get up on the bar, stand up on the bar, and call them down for their costumes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you <laughs> so know, he had a death wish. Yeah, yeah you know, because he preceded these guys in the motorcycle world, and he saw them all as uh, pretenders, you know. Mm-hmm. And they'd pull him off the bar and beat the hell out of him, and so. That's how he lived. You know, I was, I was talking to one of the big biker chiefs, and I said, uh, have you seen Dutch recently? And he says, yeah, I saw him about two weeks ago. Someone took a primary chain to him, beat his ass. And I am bitching. <laughs> bitching, man. You know, but uh, but what did you then, learn then, from then, him? Did, he, did you learn technique from him? 
Not really. You no, just you no, appreciated he, he, what he did. He had an admiration for me. Mm-hmm. He he really didn't know how to paint. Mm-hmm. He could, he never got past using one shot. And you can't blend one shot. Mm-hmm. See, and so he thought I was pretty slick. What's one could, shot? One shot is an enamel paint for pinstriping. Okay. And the, the pigments are so dense in them they don't blend. You can't right. blend them. Right. See? But he tried and made messes. But he he had a, an appreciation for my painting skills. Oh yeah. He said that. Uh, that uh, Dolly, that uh, what do you say? That uh, I, I paint like Dolly tries to paint. You know, I was uh. kind of him, but uh, he had some he had some awful ugly things to say about me. He said um, I was the boringest person he ever met in his life. <laughs> <clears throat> he was a chronic alcoholic, and I mean chronic. The first thing in the morning, started drinking barely, went to bed for years and years, and it finally finally got him in the liver. It was killing him. Yeah. Did and you, then he was getting bitter, more bitter. It wasn't like he wasn't bitter in the first place, but yeah. he got, like, chronically bitter. About what? So, well, about life in general and the races. And, you yeah. know, he was just uh, a very negative person. But on the other hand, he had this bohemian presentation. He was good, good friends with Lord Buckley at one time. And, and uh, it's kind of, kind of a contradiction in life, you know. <clears throat> but when he saw his end was near... He wrote this last testimony on a piece of paper, and it run down the races and just how he's glad to get out of this world and all this. You know? So it was a, a racist manifesto. Yeah, it was a racist yeah. manifesto, and he said that um, he said that um, uh, we fought the wrong, we're on the wrong side in the Second World War and whatnot. And then he ended the letter by saying Heil Hitler, you know, and then. <clears throat> Uh, the guy that was taking care of him, Jim Brucker, I guess he got that letter to the Hells Angels, and then, then, then it got Xeroxed, and that letter got all over, everywhere. And then this company comes along, and they start selling Von Dutch apparel. And I'm thinking, well, my goodness, when, you know, I saw blacks wearing them on television and all yeah. that stuff. And I thought, man, when is this, that letter going to surface, you know? And this, this is, <laughs> did this it? letter going to surface? Never did. Ten years it took for that letter to surface, and it was in the L.A. Times verbatim, and it just killed this big company, that just killed this clothing company. Did it? So the they couldn't find a spokesman f- f- to defend him, and uh, they keep coming to me, you know, the L.A. Times and television stations and uh, New York Times, all these people come back to me, you know, here's a guy that's going to kill me. So I had to explain to him, well, he was mentally ill, and, you know, he was my childhood hero, and, but, uh, you know, he, he affected an entire generation, and it was a wonderful influence for a lot of people, but he was quite the bigot and mentally ill, you know, so. So you put him in context. Yeah, I tried. To put, I, tried. Uh-huh. I don't know if I did. I tried, yeah. you know. But, uh, I found myself being associated with him, which I didn't really want to do, you know, but uh, no one else would come to his defense. And he, the people that would come to his defense weren't articulate. You know? Right. He sounds like you handled it diplomatically and correctly. Well, that's a past chapter now. So when you left town, so this was after Big Daddy Roth, you go to San Francisco. and no, there's Well, no, I, I never lived in San Francisco. I had property up in Marin County. Uh-huh. You still got it? No, no. I sold a long time ago. I had property up there, and I was up there a lot. I spent a lot of time up there. Hanging out? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and where'd you meet, like, uh, S. Clay Wilson and Chrome well, and those cats? I love S. Clay I met, Wilson. I met, I met these guys through Gilbert Shelton. Uh-huh. Now, Gilbert Shelton, Gilbert Shelton was doing car art 
back in the 60s through uh, uh, a fellow, a publisher named Pete Millar that did a magazine called Drag Cartoons, and Pete Millar liked Gilbert Shelton's um, Wonder Warthog, and they did a couple of Wonder Warthog books about hot rods, and so uh, <clears throat> I was dealing with the print mint to get some of my paintings published, and I'd seen this Zap comic, and it just really blew me away, and I asked for some pages, and then they'd hand this over to Gilbert, and Gilbert talked to Crum, and I got a letter from Gilbert inviting me in to get pages and zap. So, this was 68, so that's how it worked. It, worked it was pages? You were allotted pages? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they were very democratic about it. I, I become one of the seven owners of zap. Uh huh. But um, still? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the thing is, there was, I was probably the eighth or tenth underground artist underground cartoonist, comic book artist in the United States then, mm. say. Yeah. And it was later that thousands and thousands of people jumped on the Isn't it interesting how, how intimate the landscape was, media-wise, where... Well, we were drawn together because we were sure. all just, you know, we're fuck-offs. We used to read EC Comics and, you know, and like carnival art. And, yeah. Yeah, and we were, we were a rare breed, very rare bunch of people, and we just immediately gravitated toward each other because we were... We were just uh, not socially worth much. And you were defining a medium whether you knew it or not. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and what was Clay S. Clay Wilson like at that time? Very much like his cartoons. Yeah. Very, very much like <laughs> a his pirate? Cartoons. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he rode bikes. Did you, were you riding bikes at that time? I, I went through a period of motorcycle riding in the late 50s and had some r bad accidents. And I saw Stay the... Away. Yeah. Uh, the liability in uh -huh. that and had a, f a number of friends killed and maimed on motorcycles and I love motorcycles I just have the good judgment to stay off of them uh, and you and Clay who were you close with in that crew all of them oh yeah you yeah, all, you all just hung out all of them. was there a community in the early zap comics where you and crumb in Spain and Clay and the, the other guys I guess Griffin who was the uh, who were the seven uh, Victor Moscoso and, and Gilbert Shelton. Did you guys sit in a room yes. and talk about what you wanted to do? Yes. What was the agenda? Well, no, <clears throat> there was no agenda for the whole comic. Yeah. We sit in a room and do jams. Okay. Pass a piece of paper around, and get drunk, and have ladies around and uh -huh. party up in uh -huh. the hills there and have a lot of fun. You know. Did you do jam where you just add to the piece of uh, art going around? Yeah. And you'd sort of collectively create this yeah. thing. You got any of those? No, no. Those are those ended up in the hands of very wealthy collectors. Oh, so they're around though. Yeah, Moscoso took care of those, and I think they sold them out to very wealthy collectors. Oh, when did we get to see those? Are they in books? Well, they're in, they're in all the zaps. Each zap had a jam in it. How long? So you stayed with Zap the whole time. How many? How well, many I, issues? Well, were it, twelve. Well, the last one that, that's in this book here is six Zap sixteen, and then, and then Crumb did an extra one, which makes it seventeen issues. You still in touch with him? I talked to him about a year ago. And Clay's not doing great. No, he's not doing good. Um, alcoholism caught up with him. And then, uh, you know, Rick Griffin died in a motorcycle accident in 81, and then Spain died two years ago from cancer. And so it was. Uh, people are going. And yeah, now you we're got the turds now, you know. We're old people. So after, okay, so after the Zap, you know, residency, you've been painting all the way through. All the way through. And hopelessly and, yeah in 19, <clears throat> 1970 when ed went out of business a multi-millionaire car collector came in and bought all of ed's cars and bought all the original roth artwork and then got interested in the artist that did the artwork and saw my paintings and then he for uh, he bought all my paintings an enormous sum at that time enormous sum it kept me going for years 
So I could I couldn't get a show with that kind of art. And I How many get, paintings? Six or eight. Uh huh. And I couldn't I couldn't get a show, and I couldn't get in a gallery, and I sure couldn't get in an art magazine. And I just struggled along and struggled along selling paintings, and um, then um, punk rock movement come along, and I got I started doing I started licensing my paintings to punk rock groups. So then I built a whole new underground audience. They so had the Zap comic audience and the Roth audience, and then I started getting a little bit of the punk rock audience, uh -huh. too. So who were the guys who were doing that with that, you? You have to remember, the, the, the art world didn't have big audiences like this. You right. know? They just had uh, connoisseurs that they hoped to gather. But um, I was so this built is the late 70s? giant fandom. Yeah, <clears throat> late 70s? Yeah, so in, or in the 80s. And so... Um, uh, when, once I got in with the punk rock artist, you know, uh, I had a peer group. and um, Who were they? Gary, Gary Panther? Gary Panner yeah. and Savage Pencil. There was a whole slew of them. At, uh, and they all looked up to you, I imagine. Yes, and yeah. because of the Zap thing. Right, sure. Because of the Zap thing. Uh-huh. They weren't necessarily tight artists, but I sloppied it up to get in with them. So... <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> through that world, then I could get shows at, right. at these real marginal punk rock galleries and then I just haven't sold out shows so that got me to bigger galleries to bigger galleries and finally I ended up in uh, <clears throat> in, in the 90s with Tony Schifrazi uh, that that's was, when I that, that was, it was like the second third biggest gallery in the world at that time yeah it was, in, it was a great show mm -hmm. I sort of coveted the the what do you call it the car the the sock monkey the invitation the invitation yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and I and I, I, I love that thing and I, and I think that's when I got the first book what we didn't mention was that the album cover for Guns N' Roses the Appetite of Destruction which I imagine they took the title of the album from your painting right and that became like that I I think if people listening to this who who don't know your work I'm sure they've already gone to their computers to check it out but that was a, a big piece because of how many people got that record well that was a, yeah that was uh there were four paintings done that were called super cartoons and that was one of the four paintings and uh -huh. uh, Axel Rose ran across it somewhere and wanted to use it for an album cover and, and that was a that was good exposure though right for that right exposure it was a, it was a really uh, I, I had to defend it and I explained to them to, to pick something else when they wanted a cover and I said this is going to this is going to be very problematic because I, I, culturally, I, I understand. I, uh, I understand because I've been in underground comics and I know what uh, problems are going to occur. And you knew that was going to happen. Yeah, I knew exactly. In fact, I told them exactly what the order was that things were going to happen. Well, I said, was well it? your first problems, you're not going to be able to get this through the Canadian border. And the second problem is going to be uh, is going to be church groups, and the third problem is going to be family and. Uh, for that cover, yeah, for that cover, I, I told him the order of things were going to fall, and, and it they all did. happened. And I said, then the feminists, the feminists are going to get on you and tear your pieces. And they're all just like I said, you know. And you've dealt with that your whole career, yeah. And and your re, your response has basically been, you know, it's, it's my imagination. Fuck you. Well, when we were doing underground comics, there was a point about sixty, about about seventy, about nineteen seventy that. <clears throat> It looked like if the during the Vietnam War, if the country went more right wing, they were going to start rounding up discipline, you know, yeah, dissidents, yeah. people that were contrary to the actions of the government. And our names were listed with the FBI. Sure. You know, we, we we understood that if they start rounding up dissidents, they're going to hit Zap Comics. Right. You know. Sure. 
So uh, fortunately, the country got liberal there all of a sudden about the Vietnam War, and we just come out of this thing smelling like a rose. But on the other hand, all over the United States, about 400 news dealers did go to jail over selling Zap comics. So we bear we bear that burden and guilt and responsibility for these poor people who had to go to jail selling our comic books. You know, we don't just take that for granted. So I was seasoned, already seasoned to know the responsibilities and the, the discomforts and situations that these comics created. So when I got time to, these guys use this painting uh, on Guns N' Roses, I, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Interesting. The painting was never intended for general public. It was intended for a, a special and audience, a small audience that had investigative skills that would enjoy something like that. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that even, you know, after so many years, like, I mean, the, the fight, you know, during Zap where you guys knew you were provoking and it was necessary at the time yeah. to define that, that territory. Yeah. Aesthetically, <laughs> mentally, and, and culturally. Well, we had an axe to grind. We had an old axe to grind, all of us, because then when they, when they outlawed the really good comic books in the early 50s, that, uh, because of the Dr. Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent book, that they got rid of all the real good comic books in a Senate hearing. You know, and all of a sudden... Purian interest? Was that the argument? <clears throat> well, I said it was causing juvenile delinquency. Mm-hmm. They said there was too much violence in the comics and sexual luridness, and mm-hmm. it was... It, it, this was causing uh, a whole generation of young people. And which comics were these, the EC or the Fred Gaines? Or the, who was, EC, who? it was primarily the EC yeah. comics. That just about killed them except for MAD. We, we had that <clears throat> that revenge to issue out to the American world. It's like, you, you think those comic books were bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing. <clears throat> so. And you continued that aesthetic. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. I'm... Uh, I'm uh, a liberal person, a free thinker, you know. Yeah. I'm not necessarily a leftist, but I am extremely liberal, enormously liberal. Uh, and do you still get, uh, do you still get flack? Nah, not anymore. No. We're, the, we have changed the world. We were part and parcel responsible for changing the world. We changed movies, television. That zap had an enormous effect on the world that people don't realize. They just don't understand. Well, that. It, well it sort of started that ball rolling. I mean, yeah. I was thinking about coming over there today. When I, I did a little reading about about some of uh, your history, and I was like, well, look at this now. It's almost like, you know, it was a completely, we have, live in a completely porno, pornified state. That's right. State. That's right. And yeah. we're surviving. Yeah. And it's good mental health. You know? If you don't get too deep. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, if you limit your, your, your yeah. masturbation to, yeah. to a reasonable amount of time yeah. per week. <laughs> no, no. Do you think there is any repercussions? Any negative downside well, the, uh, to there's, it? there's certainly a small percentage, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, there's people that uh, are just hostile anyway. Right, know? right. Do you feel vindicated? <laughs> uh... Yeah, yeah. When I was doing the punk rock art, I got a big following with tattoo artists, say, skateboard artists, surf artists, <clears throat> surf world. <clears throat> so um, I was getting a lot of write-ups in rock and roll magazines and stuff, getting an enormous amount of press, you know, and, and the stuff you'd never get in the art world. And the art world's a very limited world, yeah. a boring universe. So I was talking to this gal at uh, one of these tattoo magazines, and I said, you know, you gotta, you, you, we, we got to do a whole magazine of just this kind of art, you know. So she called, you know. I, what I explained to her was that there were some magazines out in France in the 20s and 30s for the surrealists that were really interesting, you know. Yeah. And, 
maybe it's time to do something like that now. Not not like the boring art magazines that are on the stands now, you know, but some really interesting stuff like uh, there used to be a magazine called Minotaur and the Surrealist Revolution and stuff back in the 20s and 30s. And I told her about that, and she called me back two weeks later and says, well, I've, I've got that magazine. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I talked to my publisher, and we, we do that magazine. So they did it, and... Um, I, f I was the conduit that fed in the artists for the, the magazine because I knew all underground artists. And name of the magazine was Art Alternatives, and it did really, really well. I, I bought that magazine. I think I had the first one. <clears throat> did really, really well. Yeah. And then they fired the girl. So I guess the publisher was under the impression that, well, we can just get any crazy shit in here and it'll sell, you know. <clears throat> so anyway, it didn't do well at all after that. It, and so uh, I was talking to Greg Escalani and my wife Susanna and whatnot about, well, maybe we should find an underwriter and buy that title, put it back on the stands. Yeah. So I tried to, uh, I went to Timothy Leary to see if he could get me an audience with uh, uh, Larry Flint, and that, that didn't work out. And I tried a couple of other connections. I couldn't do any good. Then Greg Escalante reminded me that uh, I'd, I'd done two covers for Thrasher, and maybe I ought to try to get a hold of uh, Fausto Attila up in San Francisco. And so called him and told him, we would like to start a magazine, and uh, we want to buy this title, uh, Art Alternatives, that went down the drain. And So we tried to buy that title, and they, they would not sell it. See. <clears throat> so I said, well... I'll I'll come up with a title, and I wrote a list of 120 titles. So they took about 10 of those titles and took them to a lawyer to have them see if they were clean, and they picked Juxtapose. <clears throat> so Juxtapose came out in the winter of 1994 with 23,000 issues, and it did remarkably well. It was in the black immediately. It just did great. <clears throat> and I was feeding the artist in there, and, you know, Supplying them artists, why not? So then it's <clears throat> it was it was quarterly. So then the next issue came out. And it was great. It sold. It this thing was just selling like crazy. And not only was it selling really good, <clears throat> but it had one of the largest sell-throughs of a magazine. Now a sell-through <clears throat> is if you if you print a hundred magazines, uh, thirty-five of them will end up in the hands of people and. 65 will go in the recyclables. That's yeah. the way magazines are. Well, juxtapose, the distributors immediately realized this thing had like 65, 70% of sell-through. It was just unheard of. Yeah. <clears throat> so then the print rate, the print runs went way up and after a couple of years. It went from quarterly to bi-monthly and then later monthly. And this uh, first thing we noticed, well, the thing outsold our forum, say. Sweet. And then a little, a little while goes by, a year or two goes by, and it outsells uh, uh, Art in America. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Time goes by, and it outsells Art News. And we discover, well, this is the top-selling art magazine in the world we've got here, you know. And so <clears throat> originally, <clears throat> no art school would allow it in the class. You know, now it's in every art school. So if I, if, I guess if I have a legacy, maybe that's it. Now, that, that, isn't, you know, that helped a lot of artists. And there's a handful of artists that came out of Juxtapose that are now millionaires. See? Now, the, the, I guess I would take that as a legacy, but I think my legacy that I would want was what I do in paintings. You know, mm -hmm. it's, the, the, it's the, the the fact that uh, 
they said in the 80s that painting was dead. Well, painting hadn't, hadn't even started. Painting hadn't even started because it's such a narrow-minded period of time. The, the, the conceptualists just really tried to get rid of painting completely. And so uh, the, the, the area of imagination, the playing field for art, is so gigantic that no one's really... In, in, really explored it you know and th that would be the legacy i'd want to leave is uh, the exploration of what imagination can lead to and how it would compound itself and become exponential mm -hmm. in other words what my generation does i'd like to see another younger generation come and step on that and make that go one step further into wild abstraction you know to, into the just compound the poetry mm -hmm. make it lyrically remarkable well, I'll tell you, you know, you can stand in front of almost any one of your canvases for at least, you could really spend at least two hours trying to work that shit out, trying to make it, to, not even, it's not about making sense, but it's about taking a journey, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. That's, that's hard for me to keep a straight face with such a wonderful remark. <clears throat> but now I'm right here, I'm showing at... Uh, uh, Barnsdale Park at the Los Angeles Municipal Museum <clears throat> and I came here originally in 1964 to see a Salvador Dali show oh, wow. yeah and I told all my f contemporaries my fellow students fellow artists well, there's a Dali show up there at Barnsdale Park and none of them would go they were not interested it had nothing to do with abstract expressionism it was just that old phony realism you know so the, of all the places I've shown, to come back here and have an art show here, you know, it's just, it's such an honor and such a, a fulfillment, you know. Yeah. So uh, if I fall over dead tomorrow, I'll be looking good. Thank you, Robert Williams. That's a beautiful mm -hmm. way to end. So that's it. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I, I did the best I could. I think we got comfortable. I think things started to, to get comfortable with me and Robert eventually there. And uh, I, I'm just fascinated with his work. Go check out his work uh, by all means. Respect. So what else? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. The new tour dates will be up there. There's some pre-sales I told you about earlier. You should be able to get in on that. Boomer lives!